Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. On the morning of April 1, 1995, Canterbury CEO Peter Moore interrupted an emergency board meeting at Phillips Street to request a word with Ken Arthurson, his best friend of nearly 30 years. Excusing himself... Arthurson greeted Moore and received the news that Moore's club had signed with Super League and he was going with them, tendering his immediate resignation from the New South Wales Rugby League board. It was widely but incorrectly reported as the severing of the friendship between the two men. The bond shared by Moore and Arthurson survived the war. What was severed was in fact something more fundamental, a way of business and a personality type which had dominated rugby league administration for decades. This is what the bullfrog knew the ninth chapter in the Rugby League Digest's in-depth investigation of the Super League War. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams here with Andrew Paskin. How are you, Andy? Fantastic, mate. How are you? Uh, snowed under with, with this one in particular. This, this is uh, this is an episode that I think everyone's going to enjoy. Uh, there's a lot of good stuff here. Before we get into the chapter, just a couple of errata. Uh, an extremely bad look for me. <laughs> Firstly, in our last chapter, I mentioned Brad Fittler saying that he was going to be getting five times as much as the 160000 he was on. And I said, by no maths, is $800,000 five times it was pointed out by listener andy valente that it is actually exactly five <laughs> times i think you're a wordsmith not a mathematician yeah well definitely because the, the worst part about it is that i actually did the sums in my head beforehand that wasn't <laughs> like a spur of the moment <laughs> it's very rugby league though to get the sums on. <laughs> uh, and also I, I i made a statement that rugby league figures ability to find a chinese restaurant is second only to Sydney gangsters of the 1970s. That's technically true, but I said it in reference to a meeting that took place at Ansett's Golden Wing Club. It was only listening back that I realised that that's probably not a Chinese restaurant, but an airport business lounge. Yeah, but I'm sure they had Chinese dim sims, that type of thing, there, <laughs> and, and they would have been having them. <laughs> uh, so some equivocation there. So I think in the reporting of Super League over the years, second only to overall war analogies, are references to particular moments and characters being Shakespearean or yeah. something of a Greek tragedy. Absolutely. And these claims are usually made by people who have never read either. <laughs> uh, so I want to say at the start, the Peter Moore story as it relates to Super League is not Shakespearean, but it's probably the story that it's hardest to begrudge writers who reach for that crutch. It's not even a Greek tragedy. It's more a Greek comedy. Yeah. Well, like everything in this war and everything associated with rugby league, it's farce, not tragedy. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a lot of very human and, and very uh, very real moments that played out over the course of the Peter Moore story, which you'll hear in this chapter. Uh, so Moore, or Bullfrog, as we'll be referring to him for most of this episode, he's probably a name not at all or barely familiar to some younger listeners, but he cast a huge shadow over rugby league from the 70s 
all the way through the 90s. And when you think of Canterbury's success over that period, much of that can be attributed to Moore. So in the 26 years that he was running Canterbury, won five grand finals, were runner-up in another four, semi-finalists in all but eight of those seasons. Incredible record on the field. And one of those hands-on administrators that looked after everything from securing six-figure sponsorship deals to watering down the sauce in the chaos. <laughs> and both treated with equal importance. Yeah. And this is, this is one of the best things about Bullfrog is he had a particular passion for recruitment and junior development and never handed that off. Like right till the end, he was actively involved with, you know, scouting players at, you know, junior carnivals and, and all the rest of it. Like he had a, a genuine passion for that nuts and bolts of rugby league administration. Growing up, you'd hear his name all the time, second only to Arco, really. Yeah. And it was ubiquitous. And yeah. Like it was a great nickname and classic uh, rugby league face. And I always thought of him as, as a larrikin and as a rogue. You'd hear the stories the, about Bullfrog doing this and Bullfrog doing that. I didn't trust him, though. Yeah. Like, even as a kid. Yeah. <laughs> it's sort of like that glint in his eye, that devilish, roguish look. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that, that kind of sums it all up. And I said it in my intro, but I really do think that the likes of Bullfrog going out of the game, they were never really replaced. Like, for better and for worse, and I think most of the time for better, that style of administration was effectively ended by the Super League War. Well, when you think of the administrations now, you think of sort of bean counterish types or, like, local businessman types that have transferred yeah. into it. And it's, both of them are unpleasant. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But what Super League did was finish the job that started with incorporation, and that was to remove the influence of clubs from the running of the league as a whole. Mm -hmm. So that was part of the original plan, but it was made difficult when the blokes who were wielding all the power before incorporation stayed on the board. So you had Arco <laughs> running the game, you had Bullfrog there on, on the nine-man board. So once Super League came along and you lost that, I think we can say rugby league is better run today than it was in 1995. 100%. Yeah, but not without fault. And certainly we can lament the loss of characters like Bullfrog, who is one of the great rugby league characters. Absolutely. And I, I got to say, of all the things we've done so far in this series, getting to the bottom of this story has been the hardest. There's been so much bullshit to wade through, so many competing <laughs> accounts, so much not going on the public record. Like this has almost killed me. And there's something so bullfrogging about that. <laughs> yeah. Like there's something so perfectly fitting about this fact. And so on that a production note, this was originally conceived as one of several chapters devoted to the immediate fallout from the April Fool's Day Blitzkrieg. So at the time that I you know, laid this all out, I had no idea how rich and compelling the Bullfrog saga was going to be. After you just chastised rugby league people for using Shakespearean <laughs> and Greek treasure, you've coined Bullfrogian. <laughs> That's the best. So as a result, this is a two-part chapter. And what we're going to hear in this episode will lead us up to April 1, but we'll be hearing more about the fallout from Bullfrog telling Arco he was going to Super League in uh, the second part of this chapter. So let's start at the start. Peter Moore. So... I think it is important to just give a bit of his background to flesh out his story and, and make some aspects of his character, you know, be drawn out. So grew up largely raised by his mother. His father died at the dinner table when Bullfrog was about nine. That's got to put a dampener on your childhood. And so his mother, you know, ran the family from that point on and 
Bullfrog always spoke of her work ethic. She was still playing the piano for the folks in the nursing home up until the day she died at age 87 and really stressed the importance of family. And obviously that's, you know, a near universal thing from mothers, but it was definitely something he took to heart. And you're going to hear the, the term the family club over and over over the course of this episode. But there's no doubt it was something that was very innate within Bullfrog. Yeah. So that that was one of three central tenets of his life. Obviously, the, the third and maybe most important was Canterbury. Uh, the second was his Catholic background. Like myself, a son of Lewisham High, Christian Brothers Lewisham. Really? Yeah. Kevin Humphreys was as well. Uh, so this, I mean, I mean, I haven't gone too much into I haven't asked people how much of his Catholic faith played into his personal creed, but it seems inextricably linked. And you can see that in a letter he wrote to Paul Keating after the 1994 grand final, where he said, sorry about being pretty dejected. I really should have asked you to come down to the dressing room, but I was a little shattered. I really did not think that Our Lady of Lords could do that to me. <laughs> and so he played some minor grade football at Canterbury, actually had his career ended when a female driver ran him over at a pedestrian crossing and that was the the source of much mirth and, and good-natured humor within the more household anytime a woman got behind the wheel <laughs> but do you think that strengthened his bond with Arca that they both had their careers taken from them at a young age that makes sense that there's something to that isn't there so he turned to running his Lakemba news agency was on the Bulldogs football committee in the in the late 60s and Kevin Ryan friend of the show his arrival actually paved the way for the rise of bullfrog isn't it funny like it's almost like all roads lead back to kevin ryan in rugby league as well so many lately, yeah. yeah yeah so kevin ryan came in as coach and then in 1969 the trigger for the downfall of the current bulldogs administration and the rise of peter moore was a player named lionel williamson who'd come down from queensland and getting him to sign at canterbury was a big priority for ryan but this was the era where there were transfer fees and the club who were obviously being funded by the leagues club the leagues club balked at paying the eight thousand dollars it was to get him and so they missed out the Leagues Club balked at handing out the money and this led to a big furor. And at the same time that this was going on, the Leagues Club were withholding their grant to the football club <laughs> because they wanted the funds to build a new super club. It never ends, does it? Yeah. From 67 to 2019. Yeah. And so they argued that they were giving adequate money to the football club, but it wasn't being spent wisely. Again, a reasonable argument <laughs> <laughs> for most clubs. Yeah. And this led to a, a lot of boardroom drama and the mistake the leagues club made was thinking that members would prioritize a super club over footballing success there needs to be a royal commission in the licensed clubs 100 percent. but i mean what goes through their minds like everyone else cares about you and your stupid plastic clubs and yeah <laughs> like we care about winning football games yeah exactly so i mean that that's the that's the point that's why we're all doing this right and in the midst of all this kevin ryan uh, made a quote that really summed up the situation. He said, the worst thing that can happen to a junior is to be born in the Canterbury-Bankstown area. <laughs> That's just sticking the dagger in, attacking a local junior. Yeah, so that hit a nerve and the 1969 board elections saw the reform group with Peter Moore at its head uh, taking over both the Leagues Club and the Football Club and the reign of Bullfrog began. Has there been... A word bastardized more than reform in rugby league. Uh, but in this case, you can't deny that it did the job. It 
said it was going to do, brought almost instant success on the field. And so in a 1969 article, Peter Moore outlined what the aims of the reform, reform group are. So I'll just read this. There's no denying we'll have to rebuild to import players. There are many positions to be strengthened. And so that was it. Stuff your super club. We're going to get the football club right and we're going to become a success and everything will lead from that. Straight off the bat, he understands the people's mentality. Mm. And so interestingly enough, in 2018, when his daughter Lynn Anderson and son-in-law Chris Anderson staged their coup on the Ray Dib board, it was also called the reform ticket. So. <laughs> We, we talked about that a lot and there was in the press a lot of bulldog DNA and the spirit of bullfrog and, and so it was right there literally in the, the name of their bid. Yeah, but on both occasions that they took over from a debacle that, yeah. that couldn't continue. Mm, yeah. it, it wasn't like it was a, an amazing victory. It was like a victory that should have been won. Yeah, so the, the jury's still out on the, the latest reform group but I, I think they're, they're part of the way there. Yeah, well, they're on the upswing, it seems, on the field at least. Mm. And so Bullfrog quickly built his reputation as a shrewd administrator, very quickly became a person of influence within that 48-man committee. <laughs> Basically, any rule change or any modification, any you know innovation that took place over the next 10 years, his hands are on there somewhere. <laughs> We've talked about it before, but a 48-man committee. <laughs> And so when you do stand out in that kind of environment, it shows that you have some now, some shrewdness and some natural ability. And he quickly marked himself out in that way. And there's a lot of stories you could tell about things he did. And so I've, I've just picked out one that I think is very representative of his shrewdness, even though it is very minor in terms of effect or impact on the game. Mm -hmm. And that was in 1975. The Bulldogs had a home game at Belmore, but there was... Uh, heavy rain during the week and th there was some worry that the ground wouldn't be able to cope for game day on Saturday. So during the week, uh, Bullfrog had seen the TV show The Inventors <laughs> and saw a guy that had a, I guess it would have been similar to the Super Stopper that you see at the cricket these days, mm. a device for getting water out of grass and so he used his connection said how about how we get this bloke to come in and, and have a look at the field it's another rugby league sliding doors moment what if he was watching number 96 uh, actually i misspoke because it turns out he wasn't actually even watching the show he called up his friend because the other thing about peter moore was he had contacts all over the place yeah. so he called up his friend who was in the fire brigade and asked for any ideas and the guy in the fire brigade said oh i, I know this bloke he actually just won second prize uh, on the inventors <laughs> maybe you should try him so peter moore did that contacted the inventor got him to come down to belmore oval just to be sure he got the club to hire a helicopter to <laughs> hover over the ground for an hour had to get clearance from the department of civil aviation the police and the council to use that helicopter insane and, and between the two of them got it ready for game day <laughs> oh, like how much could that do with the helicopter? <laughs> it's more like that's bulldog to a T to be seen to be doing something big. Yeah. <laughs> regardless of what, what the impact of it. And those idiosyncrasies help to build the myth. Uh, and one of my favorite of all, which I think this really paints the picture of Bullfrog's style. So his office at Belmore Oval was a windowless office lined with a pool table green carpet and <laughs> featuring six steps up to his desk. I love it. I love it. 
Uh, and there he would sit smoking windfields with the filters ripped off, ashtray overflowing, nowhere for the smoke to escape. Amazing. How did he live so long? <laughs> but there's many questions to be asked about this. Like, So he's sitting on a platform in the office? Yeah. Like a big wooden platform, mm. I assume, is it? Like a drum rise or something. So six steps is quite high, you'd have to think, yeah. even if the steps are small. So how high is he sitting? And where does the other person sit? On on the top level with him or? Well, I'm, I'm thinking maybe like it's at, in some cavity in Belmore Oval. I think maybe it used to be like a passageway to somewhere and he's requisitioned it. That, that's what I'm thinking. Like it, it doesn't seem that they purpose build. Oh, right. This... So, so maybe it's like, like yeah. an like attic type thing. Yeah, yeah. That makes more sense. But like even if the person's sitting on the same level as him, like the old sitting in the higher chair trick for yeah. power, but walking up the stairs is power enough. Exactly. <laughs> to, to visit the king. Yeah, and not being able to see two feet in front of you because of all the smoke. Uh, but, but this is what a loyal uh, company man he was until he wasn't. Camels were his brand of choice until uh, the Winfield Cup era where he switched to <laughs> the Winfields but, but had to rip the filters off. Cause... Get that 16 milligrams straight <laughs> into the line. And a lot of his reputation was built on personality, his ability to read rooms, modify his tone and approach depending on who he's talking to and building real relationships. And I actually, you'll hear us mentioning Ian Heads a bit on this show. I actually reached out to Ian as someone who knew him quite well, just to get a bit of an idea about his ways and, and you know, and the bullfrog myth. It's wonderful to hear the affection uh, Ian spoke with. Yeah, about. yeah. Like, a very astute judge of character, probably the most astute we've met mm. in the game. If he rates him as a good bloke. Yeah, this is the first quote I'll use from Ian. Peter Moore was one of the best of them, a particularly shrewd operator and a possessor of genuine charm and concern for his players. He was also an administrator who developed a real understanding of the working requirements of the rugby league media and was always helpful in that area. Is shrewd operator, it has to be a step up from smooth operator. Yeah. So I, I want to use this as the jumping off point to talk about the duality of Moore. So you could see there in Ian's statement, there's that use of the word shrewd, which a synonym of shrewd could be conniving. Mm. You know, there is something like sharkish about the use of that word shrewd. <laughs> yeah. and, and that is definitely part of his personality as we'll get to. But at the same time, you get this genuine affection and a, a belief that he was a people person. He genuinely cared. So no one around him would deny that he didn't genuinely care for his players and the people at the club. And in the early days, that was in terms of player welfare, going well behind what other clubs were doing at the time. So one example of this was bringing in scholarships for players to help to you know, set them up for life after football. And this is actually another instance where Kevin Ryan deserves some credit. This was still in the Kevin Ryan coaching era. Uh, the player Dennis Scale wanted to do some studying and Kevin Ryan suggested to the club that they pay him a, an allowance so he didn't have to work during the day. And this led to the institution of a scholarship at the Dogs to uh, give players who wanted to study the option to do this. Very cool. And then the other thing was better support for the juniors, which obviously is in any club's own interest, but going beyond just you know keeping them supplied with footy boots and the rest of it, like schemes such as workers' compensation and, and various other things to keep them in the game. And I mentioned that passion for junior development and recruitment and the fact that it never left him. And, and one of my favorite stories, also speaking of his particular personality, was in a 1993 profile written by Tony Squires where he actually met him at a junior carnival. Uh, and I'll just read this. He's arranged to meet a young player in whom he's interested and who wants to go to uni but doesn't want to do it with the kids' teammates around or near the other scouts. I'm meeting him under the tree across the road at 4.30, he says. 
Like, how cool is that? Like, this is 1993. Like, he's been running the club for 25 years at that point, and he's meeting, like, a 16-year-old behind a tree. To- <laughs> I really love it. It's like these old guys... It's, it makes you kind of sad, doesn't it? Just mm. that they're gone because yeah. lived and breathed the club, lived and breathed the game. Yeah, exactly. And that's something that John Quayle said about Bullfrog. And uh, John F- Quayle is someone who fell out very badly with Bullfrog after Super League, but said that when he buys players, he doesn't buy the player, he buys their family. You know, And that's something that was very much part of the Bullfrog way. And again, Ian Head's talking about this part of his nature. So Ian went on the 78 Kangaroo Tour, of which Peter Moore was the manager. And Ian, who went on a few kangaroo tours, he said he was hands down the best manager that he saw of those kangaroo tours and said that he'd, you know, go to the trouble of like calling Ian Heads' wife back home in Australia to make sure she was okay and being looked after. I love the personal touch. You know, Jared McCracken expressing similar sentiments about the way he, you know, talked to his wife and you know, made her feel part of the family, sending them Christmas cards, like always the first one they'd receive. Isn't that the best? Paying for their dinner at the league's club when, they, <laughs> when he'd see him there and, you know, just these simple things. And and that speaks of the fact that he was from the old school. So one of his favourite sayings was winnings in the woodwork. You know, success doesn't start with buying a good player. It's in what you build as a club. Great saying, isn't it? Uh, and that went into having a kind of no dickheads policy before that sort of thing was in vogue. Well, it was a no layers policy, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. So this was his quote on the eve of the 1980 grand final, which they, of course, won starting their run of four grand finals in the 80s. Even if we win the grand final, there'll be no streamers, bugles, balloons, or naked women back at our leagues club. The player's character at Canterbury doesn't lend itself to big noting, ranting and raving, or anything that may bring discredit to the game. When I buy a player, I look first at his character. That's why there are no lairs in this club. We're realistic about our ability and never show much emotion over a win or loss. Next Saturday night will be no different if we win the grand final. We'll have a couple of beers at the SCG before heading back to our leagues club. Then the players will sit their lady friends at the cocktail bar (laughs) before having a few quiet beers for an hour or so. I guess you could call us a humble lot. <laughs> the ultimate bragging is yeah. what? you got to sit your lady friends at the cocktail bar so, so, they, could, so they could have a natter. It's a different era, clearly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a couple of Matus Rosés. And... <laughs> but, like, why were they the only club that were going, like, let's not have any lairs? Yeah, yeah. Every, every other club's going, yeah. well, lairs are welcome here. Yeah. Like, and when you think about it, like, how many lairs can you think of in those... 80s teams. The last guy that can be called a lair would be Scott Wilson, I would think. Mm. 94. Yeah, yeah. There's, it's. I, I really can't think of any of those premiership winning teams. No. And like you can argue this personal touch, the this old school values. You can argue a, a cynical way and say that that's all expedience, that it's part of his cunning. But even if you adopt that attitude about it, you can't deny it, the success he got out of that. What's he supposed to do, not capitalize on his charisma? Like- yeah, and there's no doubt he did use those old world ideals to his advantage. So the most common word used to describe him in all the accounts I read is the word rogue. Got to be lovable before that, though, surely. (laughs) Uh, And I love Ian Head's characterization of Moore and the other administrators of his ilk, saying that they had a rough-hewn charm. Yeah, beautiful. But uh, So we'll use that to pivot to the other side of Moore's personality. So before he was known as Bullfrog, uh, his nickname in the 70s was Snakey. That's not a good name. (laughs) Sharing a name with uh, former Colombo boss Carmine the Snake Persica. (laughs) And so this was for his willingness to connive, backstab, 
coerce his way into getting what he wanted. Uh, And Norm Tasker had a good summation of this aspect of his personality. His opponents see Moore as a grey nurse, gliding about in shallow water waiting to attack. He's the sort of guy who always gets his man. It's always been the bullfrog way. He persists, he manipulates, he works at it. He spends big money. If he wants somebody, he usually gets him. He upsets plenty of people along the way, for there's little of the cutthroat mentality that makes survivors the only winners, and winners the only survivors. <laughs> He's been compared to a shark, a frog, <laughs> a snake. But you know that this quote came from the 80s by the fact that Grey Nurse was the <laughs> shark he chose. Grey Nurses were big at the aquarium in the yeah. 80s. <laughs> Uh, And noted scholar of Elizabethan theatre, Jared McCracken, uh, (laughs) had this quote. He's long reminded me of a Shakespearean character because he's a bloke who doesn't simply plot the downfall of his enemies, but tries to use their demise to help his own kingdom's cause. While Peter is forever looking ahead towards the horizon, he also keeps one eye open for any adversary lurking in the shadows with a dagger drawn. Are we supposed to believe that that's a quote from Jared McCracken? (laughs) Well, Jared McCracken's ghostwriter. (laughs) I mean... Look how it's written. It's written like Shakespeare. <laughs> the only thing like McCracken would know about Shakespeare is like to be or not to be a Parramatta eel. <laughs> uh, so the bullfrogism that follows him around the most is his saying, never tell a lie unless it's absolutely necessary. <laughs> and, and there's a lot to unpack in that statement. So on a base level, it shows you that cunning, that conniving nature he had within him and would use to his advantage. But it also holds this moral statement that allowed him to operate on that level with a clear conscience. Like, when's a lie absolutely necessary? Whenever it's deemed to his advantage. Yeah, get what you want. Yeah, Yeah, so he isn't breaking that moral code as long as in his mind the lie is necessary. That's what you used to hear about, like, a lot of those old guys. You know, I'm a good Catholic, you know. And then, you know, betting with the SP bookie on the weekend and (laughs) getting on the grog. Um, So on this side of Bullfrog's character, it's one of those situations where none of the best stories are on the record. So uh, I'm going to use one example that speaks of his cunning, and that was in the 70s. There was a a hot young prospect that every club was trying to get. So Bullfrog said he was going to host a lunch of all the club bosses and get them at the league's club, have a have a nice nice arvo, a few beers, all the rest of it. So they all turn up and have, have a lovely meal, but Bullfrog doesn't turn up because he's out <laughs> signing the player. Which, it, it's a story I've seen printed a couple of times. that I, I don't really believe it, it because... It sounds like Game of Thrones. And it seems like so unnecessary, like the mechanics of it. Like, just sign the player, don't worry about the lunch. But, yeah, yeah. but then, like, if it is true... Like the lunch is part of the game. I, I think he like likes that part of. If the... it is true, it's amazing. <laughs> but it's also like I've undercut you all, but I've given you a good afternoon. You got something out of me. Like... <laughs> Imagine like Justin Pascoe inviting all the CEOs for a lunch now. Like... Well, didn't Marina go try to do that a couple of years ago and was told we all hate each other? <laughs> But so just to, to segue into uh, the next thing I want to talk about in terms of Bullfrog in the 70s that also speaks of uh, his cunning nature, uh, one player who was causing a bit of trouble in the club was brought before Bullfrog and asked to explain himself. When he gave a less than satisfactory explanation, Bullfrog said, Son, I'm the second best bullshitter in the game. Ken Arthurson's the best and you're a very bad third. <laughs> so it was Bullfrog and Arco 
you know, running the game in the 70s along with, a, you know, Charlie Gibson, a few others. And so I want to spend a bit of time talking about that cartel. And again, I'm going to use something that Ian Heads told me, having, you know, watched them operate at those Phillip Street meetings and seeing some of the generation before them. So I'll just read this. From the start, I thought of Peter as being cut from the same cloth as numbers of the top rugby league officials in the years gone by. The likes of Latcham Robinson, Frank Facer, Kevin Humphreys. These and numbers of other rugby league men before and after were tough, hard-headed administrators, sharing the quality of unbreakable immense loyalty to their clubs and players, men who would do whatever it took to benefit their club. Great quote. I still maintain Latcham Robinson's the best nickname in the league. One, one of the great ones. But this is what I mean when I talk about the death of a certain personality type, that there's some kind of through line between the young Turks of the cartel and the, the Frank Facer types of the generation before. So there's definitely like a personality, like a shift in the type of personality that succeeded in their era. But they were men of their time, just like the faces were the men of their time. Absolutely. I think the only difference is that the young Turks of that era, Arco and Bullfrog, were more more likely to bend the rules than the old blokes. Well, yeah, because it's the other thing where the old blokes were all about kind of barging indoors. Yeah. The Bullfrog and Arco were more about finding side passages yeah yeah why would you want to break the door when you could just pick the lock yeah <laughs> <laughs> but that's what you always hear about someone like frank facer he was ahead of his time and you know as much as any single man he is responsible for the massive success st george had in the 50s and 60s yeah and so it was the same with bullfrog and arco they were able to get ahead because they were just that much ahead of those around them and, you know, a nice little moment is that they were coming into prominence when the likes of Robinson Facer were still around, but kind of you know, retreating from the scene. So there was a real handing over of, of the baton. Interesting time. And I loved uh, Ken Arthurson talking about this point in time when they were the, the young Turks on the board. And he said that he heard from... Or someone told him that Bill Buckley had told them, I think Ken Arthurson's one of the best young administrators going around, but I don't think he likes me very much. And, you know, Ken feeling really bad about that because he had enormous respect for Bill Buckley. But it's just that thing of the, the younger generation and the older generation never quite understanding each other. Yeah. So especially once Kevin Humphreys took over from Bill Buckley, Arthurson, Moore, these types began to really assert their influence and dominate rugby league administration throughout the 70s and one of the ways that happened was with the introduction of a special committee that featured some of the the best rugby league talents along with like facer was on that committee so it wasn't just the new generation but through this committee all the big changes to the game throughout the 70s were being talked about so this is one argument uh, against the cartel was just you know really bad and you know they were strong arming their way to power and, and all the rest of it like the fact is they stood out because of their their competence yeah and that's something that ken arthurson spoke about in his book he said i won't deny that in the 10 years this was the group in rugby league that got things done i'm sure league has always had a core group such as we were like minds who joined together and collectively wield some power but where the argument falls down is that power corrupts very quickly and arthurson's comment about being driven by passion for the game and nothing else ignores the fact that these blokes did all they could to 
get the best for their clubs. As they should have. Yeah, as they should have. And on many occasions put club ahead of game. It smacks of like, you know, the corrupt detectives. Like the, the streets were safer in my day. Like, yes, I had a bit too much power, but I made sure things got done for the yeah, people. Yeah, yeah. Like it's, it's, it's got that vibe to yeah. it. Yeah. And we spoke about in our Arco episode, in our early episodes of this series, we don't need to go into it in detail, but that is the, the problem with having club representatives on your general committee. And in 1989, this not for the first time became an issue. And John McDonald writing in the Herald said that it was a Caesar's wife syndrome. Justice must not only be done, it should be seen to be done. Mm. And of Peter Moore, he said, some regard Canterbury chief executive Peter Moore as the game's best administrator. That may be true, but Moore is the subject of far too many rumours of having too much influence. However blameless he may be, and however unwarranted the rumours, the New South Wales Rugby League can't afford them. The principle of board participation is fine in theory, but the cost is too high in practice. Good point. Peter Moore needs to not not only super sock the field, he has to have a helicopter to show that he's doing (laughs) it. So I wanted to talk about this in terms of Super League, just to show how entrenched in the establishment Peter Moore was. And that's not to say that he was the establishment's boy. There's a long history of issues between Peter Moore and John Quayle in particular, which we'll cover when we get to it. But Peter Moore was rugby league establishment for 20 years before Super League, making that split all the more, you know, outwardly unlikely. The more we learn about John Quayle, the more I can't see him loving that sort of lovable rogue stuff yeah (laughs) well but but that's the thing he was brought in to rid that element of the game because it was like no more you know long lunches no more matey like you know oh you you want this job yeah no no worries mate i'll you know he was about bringing professionalism and you know an equity to the way that the game was run so to show how big a deal it was getting the bulldogs in 1995 we need to discuss the decade that made them the 1980s and I want to say at the start, I had to cut out a ridiculous amount of material to trim it down just for this episode. But there is like a five-part series waiting on Canterbury in the 80s. Like, um, I'm, I'm, you know, compiling a list of history corners to do when this, you know, in 20 years when this Super League series is finished. <laughs> but this, the Bulldogs in the 80s is right at the list. Like, what a saga. And to sum it up in a sentence, it's unfathomable how much success they were able to achieve with everything going on, on and off the field. <laughs> to illustrate this, uh, they actually had an honesty session built into the calendar every year. <laughs> so uh, in 1995, uh, the Rugby League Re- Week reported this, Bulldogs players and officials will get together this Friday to thrash out their differences and hopefully resuscitate a flagging club. The Say What's On Your Mind session is an annual event at the club. <laughs> But in the current climate, the meeting could turn into a free-for-all. It's a chance for everyone to get things off their chests and air their differences, volunteered Skipper Terry Lamb. <laughs> can, just a sign out, can you imagine if, like, honesty session as a concept was brought into the workplace, like, <laughs> outside of rugby league? Like... Yeah, Karen's a dumb bitch. <laughs> Don't like her. She doesn't pull her weight. She's letting her the whole accounts team. <laughs> So uh, back to the Bulldogs in the 80s, and we all know they had a number of nicknames during this time, but the one that cuts through is the Family Club. 
That's the one that predated the entertainers, that outlived the dogs of war. Through it all, the Bulldogs were known as the family club. And the idea of family is going to be a theme throughout the rest of this chapter. So I wanted to spend a bit of time exploring what that means. And of course, it all starts with Peter Moore, who was the father and godfather of that club uh, from the time he took over. But there are a couple of dualities to consider when we think of the family club. The first is a literal and figurative duality. So the literal is obvious enough. You have Peter Moore as the patriarch, his nephews, the three Hughes brothers playing, his son Kevin also playing, Chris Anderson, Steve Folks marrying Bullfrog's daughters, three Mortimers. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Two daughters. Yeah, you know, the three Mortimers adding to the mix. And then there is that figurative idea that when you were joining Canterbury, you were joining a family. You were more than just a player. You were someone treasured. You were someone appreciated and looked after. It would have been great to be part of as a player. And there's no doubt Bullfrog believed in this. And we've spoken about his efforts in promoting player welfare. It's something that his actions backed up. But by definition and design, football clubs aren't families. Your family until I get a better deal elsewhere. Your family until you passed it and a surplus to requirements. Well, in those days, it wasn't quite like that. But it still happened. Mm. It wasn't as cutthroat as it became. No. And so that leads to the, the second and more complicated duality when we think about the family club. So it's in equal parts genuine and ironic. So on the former, I think it's summed up nicely by Jared McCracken, who, as we all know, fell out very badly with his family. <laughs> You're talking about Othello. <laughs> <laughs> so he said... I'd be terribly surprised if there's ever been a club in the history of rugby league which has so prided itself on its closeness or the value of a family atmosphere, as has Canterbury. That feeling of togetherness has helped reap immense success for the Bulldogs, but over the past decade it's also been a recipe for turmoil. I reckon the traumatic memory of the Warren Ryan era, the ensuing Phil Gould fallout, and then my banishment to black sheep status justify my belief. So that kind of sums up the family club in its whole, but... I just want to talk about the genuine parts before we get to the, the ironic use of the <laughs> right, term. Right. And again, Jeremy McCracken notes that it was a very genuine part of what Peter Moore believed. It went as far as the family club being emblazoned on Bulldog stationery. And this was carried all the way through to its fans with, you know, multicultural days being set up in the 90s and, and making an active attempt to embrace the Canterbury community. We've got to give him props, man, because this is a guy who's self-trained as a manager, right? And he's pretty much Richard Branson, the same methodology Branson uses. Make your place a good place to work, mm. fun, you're included, uh, make the brand fun, everyone's welcome, that sort of thing. He's ahead of his time without the formal education. Yeah. Again, it comes back to that word shrewd. And you can see this in, when I talked about the literal sense of the family, I didn't mention the ladies in Bullfrog's life, but... It was actually Lynn Anderson who instituted the multicultural days, like looking at the demographics of the community and thinking there's a chance to really get everyone on board. And this instantly led to huge growth in attendance at Bulldogs games. And Bullfrog gave all the credit to Lynn Anderson saying, she said to me a year ago that I've got to stop complaining about poor attendances because we're an ethnic community and we've got to invite ethnic people. I thought it was a load of bull. I'll say bull because I don't want to swear for the papers. I found out it's not. I thought it was garbage and maybe the way we were marketing it was garbage, but now we're well structured and I'm proud of that. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Uh, and, of, and of course, his wife, Marie, was as invested as anyone in the family club. So uh, this was Bullfrog on his wife. I asked her about a lower grader at another club, and she says, strong attacking player, weak defense. <laughs> 
Rugby women are the best. <laughs> but on the irony, that family club nickname was something that could be weaponized uh, by detractors. And when you saw the regular fallings out of that family, with Jared McCracken noting that cries of family club are only ever called out when there's trouble within the Bulldogs. And I think you can see some truth to that. And the evidence is there of how many fallings out there have been over the years. Yeah, but how many more than that is compared to other clubs? I mean, there's falling out some rugby league across the board. Yeah. It's just they don't spruik about being family clubs. Yeah, yeah. And you can see it in... We're going to talk a bit about Phil Gould's acrimonious departure from Canterbury. It says a lot that even after all that, Canterbury was one of the few clubs he'd recommend his players go to. Yeah. Saying they look after you there, go to Canterbury. Well, if you hire Warren Wock Ryan and then Phil Gould, you're not going to avoid acrimony. Eh? <laughs> so let's talk about the former. So after the 1980 Premiership, the entertainers made way for the Parramatta dynasty. Manly were also ascendant. Suddenly Canterbury were going backwards and Ted Glossop retired, but everyone knew that there was a different dynamic needed. So getting Terry Lamb into the mix helped, but in Peter Moore's estimation, he wasn't the most important signing for 1984, and that was Warren Ryan. He said, Warren Ryan's the best buyer we've made. He got Newtown to a grand final in 1981 with a very ordinary side. This season, he'll have a team of talented players to work with, and I really think we can bridge the gap between Parramatta and Manly. We've spoken about Walk at length, obviously, in the Walk history corner, and we're both unabashed admirers genuinely and ironically of the walk the guy's record of success coaching with that personality mm, will yeah. never ever be equal yeah yeah newtown canterbury west's newcastle balmain balmain every club he took them to higher levels mm, yeah amazing and so of course it started instantly at canterbury winning two premierships in a row uh, as soon as he arrived and narrowly missing out on a third but even in 1984 there were signs that it wasn't going to end prettily uh, the first of these came when Warren Ryan replaced Steve Mortimer as captain, installed Terry Lamb. So this immediately put him permanently offside with Steve Mortimer, <laughs> causing immediate tension that forced Terry Lamb to step down from the role, which he, he did in front of the whole team. So he'd have them as backup and, and <laughs> Warren Ryan wouldn't be able to. <laughs> and so this uh, led to a fallout between peter moore and warren ryan and that would also never be fixed so warren ryan accused peter moore of pressuring terry lamb to step down as captain which for his part terry lamb denies that that happened but it just shows the atmosphere that was going on in the middle of that 1984 season and it just went on to spiral downwards rapidly from there so he won a comp with all his acrimony in the air. Would he have won more comps without acrimony, or do you think he needed acrimony to live? His track record would suggest the latter. Yeah. <laughs> I think he was fueled by yeah. dispute. So we're going to look at both of these feuds, the Ryan versus Mortimer and the Ryan versus Moore, because in a roundabout way, they both lead us to Super League. Uh, so we'll start with Warren Ryan and Steve Mortimer. Uh, and part of this is essentially a personality clash. So... Writing in the, the Herald in 1987. Who do you reckon is to blame <laughs> for the personality clash? <laughs> I honestly, like, I haven't put a lot of this in, but I don't think either party comes across particularly well in this. <laughs> I, I'd have to lean towards it was Walk's fault. If I had it. <laughs> well, as I said, Tony Sano summed up the, the personality clash uh, fairly succinctly. So I'll just read this. 
The pragmatist with a blunt, excoriating public manner who sees excessive go-on personality as the root of all evil, and the idealist, <laughs> sure that the team could benefit from his unique talents and who by all accounts is extraordinarily sensitive. Uh, and then there was the way they dealt with other people. So he said, Mortimer is almost always immediately approachable, highly personable, instantly impassioned about subjects dear to him. Ryan growls and questions your credentials first. <laughs> And the other main element of the fallout between them was Ryan's footballing philosophy that some would characterize as putting the shackles on <laughs> Steve Mortimer, uh, trying to curb his flair and his freedom to improvise. But let's give Warren Ryan some credit here. He won two comps with that philosophy. Yeah. So who's right? Yeah. Uh, and on this, and I should say this was in 1987 when the relationship between them had become publicly toxic to the point of Steve Mortimer asking for a release at one point. Uh, he said, when, when asked about the way the influence Ryan had on his style, he said, I think this, I certainly am more tradesmanlike in my approach to the game than the free bird I was a few years ago. <laughs> a lot of, uh, in Ryan's defense, is bound there in what Mortimer said, that the, happy bird, the free bird I was a few years ago. In 1987, he was already like coming to the end of his run and maybe didn't have the same abilities that he once had. So one of the central dramas between them, and this has been disputed, is that Warren Ryan banned Steve Mortimer from chipping. Um, so th this was uh, Ultimate shackle. <laughs> this is something that Warren Ryan denies, had support from Daryl Broman, who was at Canterbury at the time, and said that it, it wasn't that he banned him from chipping. He just said, if you do it on the first or second tackle within our, for, within our own half, that's generally a bad idea. <laughs> But there were signs that Warren Ryan had a point. So in that same 1987 article, Tony Sarno noted that Steve Mortimer attempted two chips in that weekend's game and both you know, fizzled out to no effect. And it had actually been a play of diminishing returns for some time. But uh, there was one situation where Phil Gould was hilariously caught in the middle of this drama. So I'm just going to read this. When I was playing with Canterbury, it was at the height of the Steve Mortimer-Warren Ryan feud. Turvey was captain, but was forbidden by Warren to chip kick. Turvey would have a whinge at me through a game, saying, The chip was on a few rucks back. I could have kicked and we would have scored. One day, when Turvey whinged once more, I said, We'll go ahead and chip. He did. It came to nothing and we lost. After the game, Warren abused Turvey, who defended his kick by saying, But Gus said I could. <laughs> Warren said, Did you? And I threw my arms up in surrender. I think I got dropped after that. <laughs> if Gus told you to jump off the Harbour Bridge, would you do it? <laughs> but... It probably goes without saying, but I'm, I'm going to characterize Wok as a divisive figure. <laughs> uh, and, and but every time we have an argument about Wok, right, someone's having a go at him, he always proves to be right, generally. But you could do better in terms of man management when you see this is another Phil Gould quote. After a loss at Canterbury, Ryan would often turn to the players and say, Steve let you down today. <laughs> I mean, that's horrific, isn't it? <laughs> Would you say that Warren wasn't in the sugarcoating? Uh, yeah, and I've got a, some other testimonies to that effect. So Jeff Robinson noted that Ryan's coaching style made players wanted to avoid going to the Belmore Hotel after training. He said, I love to go up there, but we couldn't handle it after what he'd say at training. If he spoke to men in a pub like he spoke to them at training, he'd be knocked back on his ass. <laughs> but imagine like the likes, and Billy Johnson made a quote of similar effect. Like imagine these blokes like Jeff Robinson, you know, like these hard blokes going like, jeez, man, Warren Ryan, that was, 
I don't think I can go to the pub tonight. <laughs> Billy Johnson's like the toughest bloke ever. <laughs> um, Tommy Radonica said, I have to say he's a great coach. I learn a lot from him and also how to not treat people. I don't think he appreciates that people have feelings. <laughs> but how good a coach must he have been when so many people seem to say, I've never met a bigger prick or a better coach. Yeah, yeah. It comes back to the Johns brothers. Like, there's no better judges, really. One's an immortal and the other's a great football judge and they both rate him yeah. through the roof. And, and that should be said, like, all through his career, he had his defenders. Like, look at the players that followed him to West yep. from Canterbury. So it's not a one-sided thing. For his part, uh, Warren Ryan was very simple in, in the way he summed it up. When asked of his reputation for extreme bluntness, uh, he was... <laughs> you know, typically blunt. Well, if enough of them say it, it must be the way I come over. I'm blunt. I'm not holding up as a virtue, but I don't like smarmy nice guys, bullshit artists. Maybe you can be less blunt, you know, but I'm not in the diplomatic core. (laughs) I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. And so 1985 was the beginning of the end. Not even winning two premierships in a row could save his (laughs) job. So... Even after winning the grand final, Bullfrog was unable to publicly commit to Ryan being the coach in 1986. And Warren Ryan said the same thing. He said that Bullfrog hadn't congratulated him after the win or backed him, so he he wasn't in a position to know whether he'd be coaching there next year. That seems crazy. Mm. You wouldn't get at least a begrudging handshake. So they did sputter on for another couple of years, and 1987 is when it fell apart for good. And this is what has the biggest bearing on developments leading to Super League. So the Ryan and Mortimer relationship had reached breaking point, playing out in increasingly melodramatic scenes. Uh, And this led to a rare breaking of ranks within Canterbury administration. So Gary McIntyre, who was boss of the Bulldogs Leagues Club, came out and publicly backed Warren Ryan in the dispute. And this was at a time when everyone following Rugby League knew that Ryan and Bullfrog hated each other. McIntyre waited until Bullfrog was out of the country with the New South Wales team that went to California. He's pulled the bullfrog on bullfrog. Yeah. So he waited till then to issue the statement, then put forward the notion that there was a leak in the club trying to destabilize the situation uh, and said, this person is so selfish that he's failed to appreciate that he'll have to undermine team morale and destroy his club in order for him to achieve this objective. Uh, Warren Ryan agreed that there was a leak. And another great example of... Warren Ryan speak. Uh, he called the, the leaker Hans Christian Anderson, I, I guess, because he was telling stories. Uh, and It's very literary, isn't it? Yeah, and uh, said that someone is feeding information designed to undermine him to a retinue of press stooges. Uh, and the leaker was quite possibly Bullfrog himself. Well, I mean, that's, it leaves no doubt that that's <laughs> who they're talking about. Uh, so Ryan put an end to it all by announcing his resignation, but didn't miss the chance to, to lay the boot in. So he did this to both of the few days he had in this period. So he said, I intend to discuss my decision with three people, Barry Nelson, the football club president, Gary McIntyre, the league's club president, and John Ballesty, the league's club secretary manager. I'll be talking to them to get a release from my contract. They are aware of, of my reasons for leaving. So very pointedly leaving out one P more there. Mm. Uh, and then on Steve Mortimer, asked if the players had been informed of his decision, Ryan said, the players that matter, they know what I've had to put up with. <laughs> 
Gee whiz. So Warren Ryan's out. Phil Gould's in. Like Warren Ryan, goes on to win a premiership in his first year. Like Warren Ryan, almost immediately falls out with Peter Moore, and that's the end of it right there. Beat Warren Ryan too. Yeah, that's that's never talked about enough, the fact that the 88 grand final was Gould versus Ryan. That must have been... For both of them, for Moore and Ryan, come on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's get it up. Uh, well, I, I can't remember which Canterbury or which Balmain player. It might have been Ben Elias was the Balmain player, but apparently when they were playing Canterbury, Warren Ryan said to them, I don't care if you win another game all year. This is the one. This is the one you got to win. Right. Uh, that, that was just in the regular season game. So for various reasons, which we'll get to, things were already starting to fall apart between Phil Gould and Peter Moore. Things were already bad, then Gould came out with this statement. I've been at Canterbury since 1983, and since that time, every year there's been drama, there's been innuendo, we've been in the media for a number of reasons. The club, to my mind, has never been settled in that regard. I think as time's worn on, the players are getting more sick and tired of it. It's taken its toll. I guess, you know, we're all getting a little bit sick of it. I really think the place needs a broom through it. I think it needs to clean out everything and start again. For the sake of the club, there really needs to be some big changes in the place. It's been a great club, but all empires self-destruct. That's a fact. Hush. And again, there's a suggestion that the football and leagues club are, again, at odds over Phil Gould. So there was a report that the committee voted 6-1 to one against Peter Moore on the subject of the coach. And again, subtle hints that not everything is going smoothly in the Bulldogs' administration. But how can that be when you win a comp? I don't understand. He's an ex-player. Yeah. Wins a comp. Like, what yeah. more can you do? I know. But I kind of buried the lead here and... That's because in both Ryan and Gould's case, there's a common element and a direct link back to the idea of the family club and through to Super League. That link, Chris Anderson. Mm. So going back to the Dogs of War era and the captaincy furor, Warren Ryan's cards were essentially marked at this point. And the way it came about was that he dropped Chris Anderson, who was captain, which forced the naming of captains in the first place. So once Chris Anderson was dropped, club legend, Bullfrog's son-in-law, the two were never going to be able to get over it. That's where the family club really backfired. Yeah. Uh, and again, a great quote from Warren Ryan on the subject. Some blokes think they own their spot in first grade, and it's tough when you're inheriting a club where they believe that they've pitched tents in first grade. <laughs> and in Phil Gould's case, installing Chris Anderson as the under-23s coach in 1988 had the effect of instantly undermining Gould because Everyone knew that Chris Anderson was interested in the first grade job. Everyone knew that Bullfrog wanted him to have the first grade job. So it was like Phil Gould was just warming a seat. And he goes ahead and wins the comp. Yeah, uh, which you really got to admire Phil Gould. Well, well, I mean, you got to admire it in any respect. But 28 or something. Yeah, it? yeah, yeah. Like incredible. But so, so let's talk about the nepotism thing. So it was something that Bullfrog carried around with him and something that infuriated him. Uh, asked of at one time, he said, and this was specifically in reference to Steve Folks and Chris Anderson. He said, that's stupid. That hurts. It's unfair to those two men. Chris Anderson scored 120 tries for Canterbury and I didn't once put the ball down for him. He was regarded as one of the best defensive wingers in the world for years. I didn't make one tackle for him. And he's got a point there in that there might have been nepotism, but there was incredible success along the way. Yeah, but then when does it end? I mean, like, end of your career, yeah. as Warren Ryan says, you don't 
have a tent and first group. Yeah, but like it's remarkable how consistently it got results. I mean, look at the Hughes, the Mortimers playing, you know, folks, Anderson playing for New South Wales and Australia, Lynn Anderson killing it in the marketing, de- marketing department, <laughs> you know, like that run of coaches in itself is, yeah. is unbelievable, you know. They've, so, they've done an the inverse Gold Coast Titans. Yeah. <laughs> so nepotism's not a problem if it works, and it worked until Kevin Moore. I really feel sorry for Kevin Moore. I thought he was a good player, handy player. And um, it's got, you know, there's a Scott Fulton type vibe to it. I'm glad you noted that because that's one thing I wanted to say right at the start, that this isn't trashing Kevin Moore. As you said, he achieved more than a lot of players who played rugby league did. Was a handy player, as we spoke about in our 1994 chapter, kept Polamana out of first grade for an extended period of time. Yeah, but it's like, it's, it's really sad when you've got to follow in the footsteps, particularly yeah. Bozo, but I mean, even though Moore wasn't the player, he's loads in the life. Yeah, and so Kevin Moore lit one fuse for a particularly ugly incident between Phil Gould and Peter Moore. And I decided the best way to relay this was actually to do a bit of role play <laughs> on this. So, Andrew, I'm going to get you to play the part of Peter Moore. I'll be Phil Gould. So... <laughs> Just to set the scene, this it happened in 1989. Phil Gould was having drinks at the Leagues Club one night when at about 10pm he was summoned by Bullfrog and Punchy Nelson. Can I ad-lib a bit? Y- you can, yeah. So Phil, um, is that your second or third pack of twisties? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, are you ready to go? Yeah. Okay, so yeah, take it away, Bullfrog. Mate, why are you embarrassing us with the players you're picking in first grade? We've bought a lot of new players this year and you're not using them. What are you talking about? Darren Curry, you've had him on the bench for first grade. He might be better off playing a full game in reserve grade. Fine, I'll drop him back to reserve grade at 5'8". And Bal Namapo, he's a centre, mate, not a winger, where you've been playing him. I've already told you he can't play the game, but if you want, I'll play him in the centres in reserve grade. If Curry is 5'8", where does Greg Mackey play? He'll have to play halfback. What about Kevin? He'll have to miss out. Mate, you're the one that wants him out of this club. You're the one that's got it in for Kevin. I'm not going to let you ruin my marriage and my family. Stuff this, punch you, I quit. Uh, at this point, Bullfrog leaves the table and Punchy Nelson says, don't worry, he's just a little touchy about his family. Uh, sometime later, Moore returns to the table. I've told you before, I don't think Kevin's a first grader. I've told you that he could be a first grade hooker if he's prepared to work on his game. But that doesn't suit you. Anyway, what's this all about? You're the one who came up with this, this idea of wanting the teams changed. You're the one who wants to give Bal Numapo a run in the centres and play Darren Curry at 5'8 in reserve grade, not me. Does that mean if Numapo doesn't play in the centres, Kevin stays in the side? Yes. I'll have him on the first play at home. So, Academy Award for us? Or? <laughs> I, th- I, th- I think we did well there. <laughs> Dispute that. <laughs> uh, and as a coach, it was, ironically enough, Kevin Moore who stopped that run of successive coaches winning premierships. But isn't that sickening that, like... A bloke loses his spot due to actual nepotism. Yeah, yeah. And not only loses his spot... Loses like, his place in the country. Yeah, so he'd, he'd come over from Papua New Guinea. And so with that, Peter Moore got his wish. Funnily enough, like there's talk that he actually lined up the Penrith job for Phil Gould to give him an easy out, to make it easier to smooth the waters for Chris Anderson coming in. Wow. But so th- then it happened. 1990, Chris Anderson comes in as Canterbury coach. Phil Gould goes to Penrith, obviously goes on to win a comp there. All the pieces are now in place for what occurred during Super League. So that's where this episode ends. In the next part of this chapter, we're going to look at that Super League defection and the way various relationships that Peter Moore had with people in Rugby League fell out as a result of it. I really miss characters like this guy. 
it's warms the heart hearing these stories. Yeah, and you, you'll hear a lot more about his character in the next episode. So thanks for listening, and we will speak to you next week. <laughs>